oddities, your home for strange stories, odd events, weird history, bizarre tales, unique places, and different perspectives. This is Podities. And it is 27 days to Halloween. Oh, yeah. Are you excited? Yes. Could you be more excited? No. No, I don't think so. Have you carved a pumpkin yet? No. So you could be more excited. That's true, I guess. Do they have pumpkins for sale? Yes, they do. Actually, Aldi's has these giant, perfect carving pumpkins. And when we were there, the sign said they were three bucks a piece. And they had perfect carving features. Okay, so I think I'm going to have to make stops this weekend. Yeah, we want to pick up like eight. I want to do some real pumpkins, but I also want to do some of the foam ones and leave those for the more intricate design so that way all of the hours I put into carving pumpkins isn't destroyed when they start to go bad. That's fair. The last one that I put hours into is a Celtic knot tree. I remember that. Yeah, and it went bad really quick, and that was really sad. That's not a problem for me because I suck at it. (laughs) I don't know why I find it difficult, but whatever. I'm not usually a squeamish person, but the guts of the pumpkin, I just, I don't really like it a whole lot, but I saw a trip, a trip, a trick on Pinterest where you can use a hand blender inside, and when you turn it on, like, as it beats the batter instead, it pulls all of the goop off of the inside of the pumpkin, and then you can just dump it out. It kind of, like, scrapes it clean, and I'm all for that if I can keep from having to... Yeah, definitely. Pumpkin guts. Yuck. Have you decorated? Oh, yeah. All of our stuff has been out. Has it? Yeah. Oh. I started last month. Or, well, I've been decorating for a month already. I didn't realize that much time had gone past. But I just redid the room where we're recording, and there's now Halloween stuff up that makes me so happy right now that it's... I'm going to leave it up year-round because it really does make me happy, and I think we all deserve to have a place that brings us joy just from being there. Agreed. That's awesome. kind of Halloween for a, in a nutshell, though. Yeah, absolutely. What were you going to say? <laughs> Tony agreed to do a Halloween Christmas tree this year. Yeah? Because we had to throw our fake tree away last year. Well, we didn't have to, but I did because it made me angry, <laughs> and I hate Christmas trees because I'm not a big fan of Christmas in the first place, so... We're going to get a black fake tree. Like a full, like, Christmas tree one? Or are you going to get, like, one of the, like, Tim Burton-y, like, single tree with no leaf kind of ones? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I didn't think about Michael's that. Michael's has them and I love them. I've been trying to convince myself it's a practical purchase because I want to make a Halloween tree. But it's like a Charlie Brown tree. Oh, okay. It's small, but it's black and there's lights on the end of it. And you can you can do ornaments off of it. It's probably like relative in size to a coat rack. Oh. It's really adorable. I have to check that Because I keep, I keep ornaments out year round if there are things that I like. Like I have Nightmare for Christmas ones, a Buffy one that I just keep out all year round. So what are we talking about today? We are going to talk about a, if you're familiar with the Victorian era or if you have an interest in like arsenic and poisons and early, the history of medicine, you might be familiar with the humbug poisoning, the poisonous peppermint candies, and a man named William Hardiker. And then we're going to talk about arsenic as poison because it does have a wonderful, huge history all on its own. And we're going to end with some really interesting examples of early makeup, cosmetics, and fashion trends on and around the Victorian era. 
Awesome. So William, how do you say his last name? Hardiger. Hardiger. That's not what I was saying in my head. So he was a regular customer at the confectioners. It was a common practice of his to purchase the sweets. He would be reselling at the local market that night. There was a really good business in sweets and sugar, yep. which isn't surprising. Same today. Always. Refineries couldn't keep up with the demand, which created a unique experience for bakers and the like to profit off, quote-unquote, white gold. That's why it wasn't unusual for sugar to be cut with daft, an inert substance that was essentially filler to help the sugar stretch farther. It's exactly like what you hear about people doing with cocaine when they yep. cut it with various household products. It's not the best comparison, but I think it's the most... Yeah. The It really is. It's the best way to explain it. Cutting the candy. It was easily overlooked. After all, humbug Billy had a job to do. What he didn't know, what Billy couldn't have possibly predicted, was the deadly outcome of these peppermints. Unbeknownst to the people in Bradford, the daft that had been used in the making of the candies was, in fact, not daft. Instead, 12 pounds of arsenic trioxide had been baked into the candies. Yeah, the fluffy white stuff. 12 pounds. The full recipe for Billy's humbugs was 40 pounds of sugar, 12 pounds of daft slash arsenic, 4 pounds of gum and peppermint oil, which created at minimum 40 pounds of humbugs. I have no idea how many peppermint candies are in a pound. That's like one of those things that you could guess for a raffle. Yeah, you really could. But what we do know is that the arsenic levels in each candy were high enough to kill two people. Yeah, and a lot of the people that were eating these were probably kids. Yeah. They're sweets, after all. Unsurprisingly, it didn't take long for consumers to fall ill. People in Yorkshire? Yorkshire? Yep. Yeah, York, uh, well, I think that might be how we pronounce it. I think it might be a regional thing. Isn't it? Okay. Yeah. They were called in for assistance and a door-to-door -door check commenced. People who frequented the market were checked in on and any candies that were collected and were disposed of. In total, 20 people died and over 200 suffered from arsenic poisoning. That is like the scariest thing that you could get sick off of. You think you're just going to enjoy yeah. a peppermint and then... And it didn't, the, yeah. I mean, it did look a little different to the people that saw candies on a daily basis, but obviously not enough to make them think that something bad was going to happen. So if they couldn't have known, then there's no way the consumers could have known that just like the slight hue change was enough that right. they would get sick. Yeah. So two changes occurred after the Bradford Sweets poisoning. In 1860, the alteration of food and drink bill was passed. It aimed to change how ingredients, including daft and arsenic, could be used. It wasn't perfect, but it was a step in the right direction. And in 1874, the sugar tax was repealed. No longer only affordable by the elite or wealthy, sugar was now affordable to everybody. Hooray! Daft was no longer needed or wanted. Good. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> there are still plenty of ways to poison and be poisoned, but as far as the story is concerned, we don't need to worry about more poisonous humbugs. Thank God. It's already tough enough to think about some of these scenarios and t points in time, and then you add in children and women, and, I mean, they were penny candy, so it was, you know, pocket change for some, but yeah, all the spending money to somebody else. Yeah, that's very true. So last week we discussed arsenic eaters and we touched base on where arsenic can be found, how people harvested it, and how they sold it. Um, but we have to keep in mind the arsenic has been included in so many more things than we've talked about. And I think it's important to keep that in perspective because the 
the topics we've picked and selected are case studies. They're very specific examples of a microhistory, if I think that's a good way to put it. So, but arsenic was in everything. So we're going to talk about makeup. We talked about wallpaper. We talked about uh, clothing, shoes, parasols, gift wrap. I yeah. mean, it was everywhere. So we're gonna leave. We're gonna leave arsenic enemas for another day. You're welcome. And we're just going to focus on arsenic as a poison. Okay. So it's important to note that at this point in time, we don't yet have a test to detect arsenic, and the symptoms that are displayed when somebody's been poisoned are very easy to have confused with food poisoning or dysentery or cholera. And to people consuming it, you might wonder, well, how did they not know? And it's because arsenic is odorless. It's tasteless. It can easily be confused for coarse flour or sugar, excuse me, like we saw with the Bradford poisoning. Um, and there's just, there really was no way to know. There's a reason, though, that it's called the Kings of Poison and also the Poison of Kings and my favorite, the Inheritor's Powder. We're going to go over a quick, short timeline of arsenic. So the first recorded use of arsenic in medical situations dates all the way back to the 5th century when it was used to treat ulcers. Oh. Yeah. The founder of modern medical education pronounced arsenic the best drug for treating leukemia in 1890, and it is, in fact, still used to this day to treat specific acute forms. That's crazy. Isn't that? And in 1910, it becomes the first effective remedy for syphilis. Well, yeah, we we we'll probably have an episode about um, STDs and STIs at some point, just because I think it's an important discussion to have, and we need to be open about the past and everything that we've done. And it's a it's a good story to tell. I think it's important. I don't mean, gosh, <laughs> you know what I mean. I don't mean good, good. I just mean it's a story that's worth telling, and people need to hear it. But, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So at the time, arsenic was prescribed by doctors for typhus, malaria, asthma, menstrual cramps, ulcers, and cancer. One of the most popular quack medicines of the time was Fowler's Solution, which was a 1% potassium arsenic flavored with lavender to make sure people didn't accidentally think it was water. Oh, God. And it was used for everything. It was used for eczema, anemia, asthma, malaria, syphilis. Again, if if it could be prescribed something, if a condition could be prescribed something, Fowler's solution could almost always be an answer. That's how powerful or how popular of a wonder drug it was. Jeez. So we have the doctors that prescribe it for health reasons, and then we have the poisoners that use it to poison. In Renaissance Italy, the bourgeois family used arsenic, among other poisons, to murder in a power grab. They, their family birthed two popes, and they were known to have murdered a bishop, a cardinal, and a noble, all associated with the church. But it wasn't just this family that dabbled in arsenic poisoning, although they are the most well-known. We have, in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, Arsenic Annie, who was responsible for at least five murders and was the first woman at the time to be given the death penalty and sentenced to the, sentenced to the electric chair. Wow. And rumors say it was because of her gambling debt. I couldn't find out if that was true or not, but for some reason, 
she started poisoning people to pocket their life insurance, their savings, their wills, whatever was left to her. And then in the late 1800s, we have Madame Marie Lafarge, who became the first to be convicted after the new test for arsenic became available. So from the ancient Greeks to the works of Agatha Christie, these are just three of the many, many cases of arsenic and arsenic poisoning throughout history and literature. There are three important factors that we need to talk about that allowed arsenical poisoning to become big news, like big, big news. So at the time, newspapers were suddenly much less costly to produce and purchase, and there was a rise in literacy rates, yay, from 50% in 1830 to 95% by the end of the century. Mm. And the press of the early Victorian era was successful in creating the illusion that poisoning from arsenic was much more common than it truly was. That isn't to say, though, that it wasn't a common or unheard-of tale. So the entire decade of the 1840s was arsenic poisoning's time in the spotlight. It created as a byproduct, arsenic was considered a waste, literally. Mm -hmm. It didn't take long for people to recognize the profit that could be made from selling something that would otherwise be thrown in the garbage. Arsenic was cheap. It was readily available, obviously, since it was in everything. Even kids could go to an apothecary and purchase it if they said it was for rat poison. Yeah, it was made for the new poison choice for exterminating rats and other vermin infesting Whoops. the city. <laughs> um, unfortunately, some people saw their relatives, boarders, children, and total strangers as no better than said vermin. Life insurance. Oh, sad. Sorry. It's a sad statement. Yeah, that is very sad. So life insurance organizations began to pop up throughout the 19th century. For a low weekly cost, the friendly societies provided financial support to members in the instance of illness or accident and covered funeral expenses if death death occurred. Some societies even employed medical doctors who could be seen or sent for house calls. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Burial clubs weren't labeled as death insurance, but that's certainly what they seemed like. Instead of paying in weekly for assistance during accidents or injuries, you could pay so that upon your death, the club would help with funeral costs. People were desperate to avoid a pauper's funeral. A pauper's funeral. What is a pauper? Um, a pauper's funeral is when no one that you are related to or have as an ex of kin can afford a proper, oh, probably right. religious okay. burial for you. Right. So they were desperate to avoid that. Yeah, people absolutely were. They didn't want that. Yeah, it was humiliation that accompanied it and the risk of losing your loved one's body to an anatomy school. Which was even more terrifying at the time. Yeah. As more and more people entered the clubs, the tales of poisoning for the monetary payout continued to increase and was given the nickname the Death Club, an institution from which a new race of poisoners has sprung. That's... It makes it, they did a great job advertising this arsenic poisoning. They've got great slogans and advertising for it. It's seriously. So this whole panic, as it was pointed out during the research, was not too different from the anthrax scare that gripped the U.S. in the years following September 11th. Murder in the headlines became such a consistent topic that people became desensitized to it. Women in public would openly talk about white powdering their families. According to rumors, there were clubs in England that existed to educate women on the act of poisoning and make said poisons available to them. They were rather appropriately dubbed the Dabblers in Death. Which makes an awesome, like, Instagram handle or band name. Yeah, that's true. 
That'd be badass. <laughs> the total number of arsenic poisonings is believed to comprise one-third of all poisonings from this era. While there are many salacious stories of people bumping off next of kin and parents to quickly to quicken their inheritances, and it did happen too frequently for comfort, it also happened in a time when practically bathing in arsenic was a normal, if not a privileged, experience. People wanted all the stuff that arsenic was in, apparently. Oh, it... it and <laughs> I stumble, but yeah, if if you could wear it, if you could eat it, if you could drink it, if you could inhale it, if you could apply it, insert it, we wanted it. It was, no, it sounds ridiculous, but we just couldn't get enough of it. That's crazy. So before we continue on to the next topic, cosmetic and fashion trends, it's important to understand the context. These cosmetics and beauty products weren't only used by women. The world was a God-fearing place. Sexually transmitted diseases and infections were running rampant. Everyone was having sex, but no one would talk about it. Because we couldn't talk about sex, therefore we couldn't openly talk about STDs and STIs. At the time, it was believed that blemishes, freckles, scars, acne, etc. were proof of God's displeasure at our sins. Mm-hmm. Or it could be the physical manifestation of inappropriate sexual fantasies <laughs> bubbling up internally from your loins to your face. That's what the church claimed. <laughs> I'm. Oh my god. <laughs> Next time I get a zit, somebody's gonna be like, "Oh, you having a breakout?" I'm gonna be like, "No, man. God is displeased with my sexual fantasies bubbling up." It's a sex dream. <laughs> uh, oh my god, that just—it's so crazy to me to think that that was something that's that they thought possible. Oh, what a chuckle. Things are different now, and with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we can see the imminent danger and probable outcomes from each of these stories. It's kind of hard to miss. Yeah, right. In many instances, long after concerns arose over various poisonous products, it stayed in fashion. But why? Why do they do it? It's, it's necessary to put yourself in their shoes for a bit. Sometimes people were that desperate for whatever reason. But I think maybe it's the everyday danger of their life that made toxic makeup worth the risk. Yeah, I mean, they certainly didn't have quite as Why long not? life expectancy. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And people got sick all the time of... of an onslaught of different illnesses and viruses and diseases. So what was, you know, 20 years down the line, this makeup's going to cause this thing? That wasn't, you know, a it's concern. like their version of YOLO. <laughs> yeah, I Arsenic guess so. makeup. Like, oh, yeah, that'll become even more applicable when we talk about uh, how high the women used to style their hair. We'll get there. It's ridiculous. So back to talking about the dangerous life and why this makeup was worth the risk. There were always people desperate and willing to try anything. So they'd find selections of preparations at their local apothecary shop, or they could mail order through the mail with a pharmacist, mail it in. I think we kind of get that with, uh, I get knitting Afghan uh, magazines that I can mail order. I don't, but I get a chuckle out of it. 
But otherwise, an apothecary or a local shop was an easy and quick way to stock up, but buyer beware, many pre-made products contained red and white lead, mercury, and belladonna. Like our favorite from last episode, Shields Green, it was found that these ingredients made the makeup colors more vibrant, more durable, and more desirable. When made with lead, the product gave quote-unquote superior coverage and granted the wearer an enviable luminosity. And for the do-it-yourselfers out there, these products and routines were so, excuse me, so popular that you could find directions and recipes in the ladies' magazine. And I think this is like the OG Pinterest. (laughs) And one variation of a nightly face water, and perhaps the only pleasant recipe I read that I can share with you, contained rose, almond, elderflower, sugar, lavender, oatmeal, and lemons. It's one of the few recipes I've read that didn't contain at least one kind of poison. But for every one or two pleasant and non-deadly recipes out there, there are dozens more that are. Face powder was the most widely used cosmetic of the day. The powder would be scented and lightly colored and made of starch, milk of magnesia, rice powder, and French or Venetian talc and lead. Once your complexion was to your liking, you would strategically add color back onto your face with rouge to give your cheeks a youthful look and lipstick. Most lipstick stains were made of ground alabaster or plaster of Paris with dyes. However, vermilion, which was a popular colorant at the time for rouge, contained mercury. Most lip tints were made of insects and plants mixed into fat, wax, or cocoa butter. Oh, God. You weren't really any better off going that route. Seriously. Dip brow might be a new trend, but the desire to darken eyebrows and eyelashes predates the modern makeup industry by a long shot. All the way back to the ancient Egyptians up until the Victorian era, the coal that they often used to outline their eyes contained lead and sometimes antimony. Small combs were used to apply the makeup to either your eyebrows or your eyelashes, but before they would do that, they would dunk the comb into a mixture of vinegar, and I think it was to, like, maybe thin out the product and make application easier, but the problem was was that the vinegar leached into the lead, and then it created a poisonous comb. Ugh. So other substances, though, that weren't poisonous that we've used throughout time to stain or darken our eyebrows and facial hair because we've done it with beards, mutton chops, mustaches, all of that. So we've used charcoal, elderberry juice, Indian ink, and burnt clove paste. And in an ironic twist, people with thin or thinning eyebrows and eyelashes were recommended to apply a nightly mercury treatment to encourage hair growth. But let's not stop there. All right, Meg. (laughs) Are you looking for a way to have your eyes sparkle and appear more alluring? Always. Well, reach no further than the citrus fruit in your kitchen. I only have bananas. You only have bananas? Well, I have apple. Citrus. Citrus. Okay, I'll get some citrus fruit. Perfect. What do and I do? Then you just squeeze a few drops in right directly into your eyeballs. That sounds You out of citrus? Yeah, right? No, it's perfect. If you're out of citrus, like you are, because you people like bananas for some reason, perfume could be used, and it was a normal thing to use belladonna drops, aka deadly nightshade. 
While the belladonna drops did in fact dilate the pupils and make the eyes look larger, too much use over time could cause blindness. Mm -hmm. So your eyes would look all pretty, but you wouldn't be able to see them. That would suck. Another recipe called for a mixture of turpentine, beeswax, and human fat. Where would you get human fat? Where do you get human fat? My mind is going to... I already know the answer, but I asked the question anyway. You'd get it at either the apothecary, but chances are you'd go to the local hangman. And I'm dying to do an episode episode on hangman, so we'll learn more about that later. See, my mind went to Fight Club. Yeah. Oh. Where they yeah. make the soap and they go and steal the bags of, like, human Ooh. fat. Oh, <laughs> They're gosh. just throwing them over the That's, fence. Ugh. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's the same concept. We're just talking about, you know, hundreds of years apart in yeah. time. That's true. So, yeah, like you said, the apothecary or the local hangman. And if that wasn't enough, here's another way to appear pale and luminous. Give it to me. Consume a cocktail. Good start, right? Mm-hmm. Made with a combination of arsenic vinegar and chalk and the ensuing anemia would make you appear more aristocratic so i could be more pale than i already am yes because you don't look but i'd be like fancy yeah i know pale skin was queen and <laughs> predominantly white societies and this cannot be emphasized enough do you know why throughout time it's mostly been that pale skin no. Was like for the, indicated more royalty. It indicated that you were of a stature of wealth that you could afford to pay people to do your work for you. So the people who were pale could afford to have people out in the fields doing oh. their farm work for them. And you were pale from being inside and not in the direct sun. Hmm. I was going to say, well, we're queens then, but yeah. then that kind of went downhill. Well, no, it's just... Just be proud of your freckles. Be proud of being pale. Be proud of being whatever color you are. Yes. Preach. So bathing in arsenic springs would give a person the highly idolized transparent white complexion. There we go. I don't think we could find one of those today. (laughs) If you leave the house, you best cover up to prevent any sun damage. Maintain that paleness with veils, gloves, parasols, and the like. Romans used cosmetics to lighten their faces, and Queen Elizabeth herself went against the church by using Venetian cerus. Mm -hmm. Translates to the spirits of Saturn. That's got to be a drink. I'm sorry. All I'm saying is you need to make the spirits of Saturn drink. Spirits of Saturn. That's a dope name. Mm -hmm. And it was used to fill in and cover her smallpox scars. Yep. It's used as a cosmetic foundation formed from egg whites, then applied over a mixture consisting of lead, perfect, mm-hmm. vinegar, sometimes arsenic, hydroxide, and carbonate. In the short term, it seemed to work perfectly. It smoothed the complexion, but over time, it would discolor the skin, cause hair loss, and rot your teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a nice side effect. Yep. Not unlike the beauty regimens of today, people in the past also used face peels. This mask was made of eggs, vinegar, and turpentine, mixed with onion, Yum. quicksilver, and lemons, all prepared in a lead dish. Apply to the face and leave on for just a quick eight days. Remember what happened when we dunked the lead combs in the vinegar? Wait, what? When we dunked the lead combs in the vinegar for our eyebrows and our eyelashes? Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the ingredients is vinegar, and they use a lead bowl, so you can expect the same... 
reaction there too but then you're taking the substance from the bowl and putting it on your face Mm, perfect yep so then after that super quick eight days (laughs) if you're looking for something a little less crazy you might opt for a mercury facial treatment yep those with inflamed faces could benefit from this beauty treatment Mix together mercury, bay oil, and the spit of a (laughs) fasting person and slather that right on your face. They failed to mention how long the spit of the fasting person should have been fasting for. You might look out using your own if you haven't snacked recently. Why not? You don't have to depend on somebody else. There are two other facial tonic washes that I want to bring up, too, because, wow, not that those can compare. I just, you got to the onion part, and it just, it my brain went overboard realizing how smelly that yeah. mask must have been, and to leave it on for eight days, because then you would often have to wash it off and then put something else on your face, and you've had this mask literally eating at your skin Ugh. for over a week. You smell like Shrek all the time. <laughs> So the first facial tonic um, is gets straight to the point. If you're looking to keep your face fresh, just splash with an opium wash at night, followed by an ammonia wash in the morning. Wow. Lovely, pleasant. And then the second is actually called Aqua Argentata and was used as a lotion to enhance. And pants mm-hmm. enhance a pale complexion. The recipe for this mixture called for mercury sublimate mixed with liquid mercury and then vinegar. Mm. Allow the concoction for to sit for eight days, and then you're going to add 13 crushed pearls, gold, silver, camphor, bazaar, and talc, because you've got to cover all the bases. There's those bazaars again. Right? They were. They really, they just scrape, up everywhere. scrape off a piece. Ugh. So the desire to feel and look attractive is something that we share with our ancestors. And hopefully by now it's apparent how unachievable past beauty standards like those today are, but what extents we went to try and reach them anyway. Those variations of blemishes we talked about were deemed unsightly, and the modern cosmetic industry stemmed from a desire to correct and conceal them. Nearly all of these products were corrosive and created a destructive cycle in which, over time, people required more and more makeup to cover the scars and sores. But today, like then, our beauty standards didn't stop at cosmetics. If you remember, STDs and STIs are running rampant, and they're not the only ones. Smallpox was a common malady, and those that did not kill often bore scars for the rest of their lives. Poor or rich, young or old, smallpox did not discriminate, and so moosh were born. They were created out of black taffeta, which is a smooth, plain-style fabric, leather, or gummed paper, which is kind of like a postage stamp or washi tape, Mm. and the patches would be done to cover scars, pockmarks, and from disease. Crude glue held the fabric to the face, which just sounds so uncomfortable. And there were so many patches at the time being worn that their creation made a sustainable industry for the women and children making them. They were traded. They were gifted. You had collections. If you had smallpox scars and wanted to cover them, but for whatever reason you weren't interested or capable of using the cosmetics, the moosh were the next best thing. Not only were they a useful tool, they also enjoyed some time in the limelight as the basis of a secret language. 
What? So I couldn't, this made me cackle, I won't even lie, reading this. And are you familiar with how the hand fans used to be used to communicate and you had to be trained in it? The moosh had a very similar process where depending on where on the face you were wearing it and how many there were, it could be anything from declaring your political affiliation to looking for a lover. Wow. So it it actually has this kind of micro history where it had a popularity with the women. And it's very unsurprising because in that time, women were never granted a voice. And so this secret language was a way for them to have a voice. Wow. That's awesome. And so then we're going to get into some crazy ones. Not as heartfelt. So the next is tall hair. And this trend in specific saw the invention of an early curling rod prototype, which I thought was really neat, and it'll make sense why you want to have something other than just your hands to have to do all of this hair. Because the bigger, the better, to the point that it risked the safety of the people wearing it. Women have been known to faint from the sheer weight of the hair. Some had to sit on the floor of a coach instead of the seat because their hair was too tall. (laughs) And then there are lots of counts of women having to duck through doorways because their hair was so large. And part of it's because everything went in the hair. Feathers, jewels, string, ribbon, vegetables. 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 Yeah, if you had some handy, just you better hope that they are very fresh and aren't going to expire. Because the most elaborate and largest designs, the ones that required hair extensions... Um, They stayed in for a really long time. Oh, God. Mm. So these most elaborate designs that I mentioned, the hair extensions, they created a market for hair. A market for hair. The most expensive and sought-after hair was from a young virgin, of Of course, course, while the most common and inexpensive was horse hair and wool. Makes sense. But when all was said and done, the hair would be coated in a powder of either white lead or flour. Again, one or the other, not too specific. Yeah, they don't, again, I don't think they're really reading. Probably just go down to the pantry and get whatever white powder is there. But because these hairstyles were so time consuming and such an event, it was normal for them to be worn for weeks. Weeks. Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. How long does it take, like, zucchini or an onion to spoil? Less, like a squishy tomato? Less than oh. that. But this was so normal that at the time they had devised these wood wedges that aren't quite pillows, but that's the easiest way for me to relay what they look like. And they were used to help maintain the shape of the hair while you were sleeping. And in a small act of defiance, the powders that I mentioned earlier, I love this part. The women could get away with tinting them. So they put in just a little bit of color and into the powder that they were going to use on their hair. And it was kind of like one of those first pops of like individual personality that I've seen in all of this talk of fashion. And it seemed to be that um, the pastels were really popular, specifically purple, pink, and blue. So now the downside to these updos is that lice was so common. And I'm kind of squirming in my seat. Uh. If you already had lice or you contracted lice while you were sporting one of these huge hairstyles, you could use a long stick to scratch your scalp. But because 
you know, this was such a common thing and rich people had such disposable income. We've seen variants in history that had to be expensive, right? So they've been made out of bone and ivory oh. and silver and gold. Shaving off all of your natural hair also was not unheard of. Not everybody wanted to deal with it. Shave it off. The lice have nothing to hold on to. Yeah, that's true. So then they'd wear the wigs, which I guess your lice issue is kind of back again. <laughs> a common treatment at the time involved rubbing arsenic cream into your scalp, there it is. your armpits, and your pubic region. Mm -hmm. It was trendy for the men at the time to shave their hair off, and the only people that were allowed to have facial hair were in the military, so wigs and hand-drawn eyebrows were the norm. No one, you know, mm -hmm. thought twice about it. And in particular, the men's wigs, the boring ones, because they couldn't get away with coloring them with the powder, they were just brown, black, gray, white, mm -hmm. blonde. Um, their wigs gave way to tie wigs. So they're wigs that tie on, and this is when you start to see them become. I know. Can you think? Are you thinking of somebody tying a wig on? You got to get the curls in there, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like in um, oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. It like takes it off. Yeah, kind of like that. That's what it makes me think of. Um, but then the one other option for men at this point was hats, and at the time, the most common. And most wanted, most desired hats were made out of beaver skin, and they were Aww. produced in a way that it mimicked silk. Aww. Yeah. Poor beavers. This is also the point in time where, like, beaver tail was a delicacy. Oh, God. I don't want to think about that. Okay. Okay. I won't go into that. Go. Hoop skirts. Yeah. Hoop we talked skirts. about them last week. Yes. A hoop skirt dress could take 20 yards of fabric with each yard containing upwards of 60 grains of arsenic, like we previously talked about. Yeah. Probably not so surprisingly, these dresses were not only the fashion items to have contained arsenic at one point or another. Gloves, stockings, and shoes, all culprits. But when it came to fashion, poison isn't the only worry. Crinoline dresses were the peak of fashion for roughly a decade. This style, like the hoop skirts, was essentially a cage with fabric over the top. However, this time the danger of the design lied in the dress's size. Like the shape of a teapot cover. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little, little teapot. teapot. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect you to start to. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so that's like, perfect. Like the shape of a teapot cover, these dresses were lightweight, poofy, and difficult to tame. A light breeze would easily sweep away layers of a crinoline dress. Posing a threat to the woman's modesty. A solution was found in the creation of what we would consider underwear. Up until this point, the weight of all the combined layers they wore kept their skirts from blowing in the wind. Can I just, it's so unfathomable to me to try and think of a point in time where we didn't wear underwear. I know. Gross. It's weird. Yeah, I know. It's, it's so strange to, to think. think. Yeah. So despite how dangerous these dresses were... They held on to that short popularity. For the first time, women of all types were wearing the same fashion. Yeah. The popularity of the crinoline dresses was universal throughout countries, cultures, and statuses. Women bonded and bought hoops. Lots and lots of hoops. Lots and lots. Lots and lots. At the peak of popularity, one of the top production companies of hoops was producing the equivalent of half a million hoops a week. Mm-hmm. And the men hated it. There's the cherry on top. They took every chance they could get to commiserate with others about how difficult their spouses were being and how bad they had it. 
Because of dresses. Because their spouses wouldn't listen to them and wore the dresses anyway. and So they just kept doing it on purpose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love it. Yep. Um, like we said, it only lasted for roughly a decade. But, man, was that a... If, if we could if we could forget about all the fires and stuff they're going to cause in a few minutes, the dresses would be just like this hurrah moment in history. Such a good... Take that. Yeah. Makes me think about when I was little. Remember when I played the flute? Yeah, for... Like a brief period of time. Yeah, brief. <laughs> well, our parents hated it and constantly complained about the noise. So I took up the French horn to get back at them. <laughs> and I was terrible at it. Take that. <laughs> I was totally half expending some weird, like this one time at band cab something. I don't know. Nope. Just the French horn. <laughs> so these dresses might go down in history as the most dangerous article of clothing. Do you ever think he would say that? No. Not only were they dangerous to those wearing them, but also to the people around them. They've been known to knock people over, mm-hmm. including the case of one man who was bumped into and then fell into the road. He was run over by a horse and coach, and he broke both of his legs. Yep. Accidents like these were fuel for the crinoline hate fire. And speaking of fire, can you po- guess what posed the biggest threat? Fire. Fire. Dresses were highly combustible and posed a deadly threat to everyone and everything around them. Not only that, but open flames were normal for the times, mm-hmm. whether it's an open hearth fire or a candle. Could you imagine being at dinner and having a crinoline dress on with one of these wigs? And when you stand up and walk around, not only are you at risk of catching fire from the fireplace which you obviously had but also chandeliers oh my god and then candles lighting the tables yeah yeah and we're talking we're talking really big and poofy too like you can't easily avoid it this is beyond what we would consider like take a prom dress a crinoline prom dress and multiply it by like five high stakes so we had mentioned that these dresses were popular for only about 10 years It's obvious that they had fallen out of fashion at some point. And it's true. Wide hoops and layers upon layers gave way to high waistlines and a slender appearance. It's at this time that we see the first purses being worn and used. And then the cycle continued and popular fashion shifted yet again. This time to separates, aka jackets and shirtwaist blouses. That being said, with what little time we have left, we're going to stay in the era of the poofy dresses and talk about some interesting people and stories. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so ready for this. Two things you might not expect us to say about these crinoline dresses. Smuggling and stealing. I did expect it. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) The large size of these dresses gave shoplifters that much more space to work with. Shoplifters in these dresses were noted as having... Stolen them is easy... Wait, what? <laughs> Typo. <laughs> they were noted as having... They were easy and convenient hiding places to seal silk, lace, even parasols. How many parasols? I want to know. It doesn't right? say, but I want to know how many. I want, like, underground competitions to see who could steal the most in there. <laughs> Guinness Book of World Records, reach out to us. We got an idea. <laughs> there were two notable thefts we wanted to share with you today. The first thief was discovered to be in possession of a steel... A set of steel fire irons that were MacGyver rigged, hanging from her undergarments. (laughs) That's just impressive. (laughs) I cannot help but imagine Marla Singer. (laughs) What? 
I don't know why, but I just like if I'm trying to imagine somebody who's ballsy enough to try and tell the police that they're her fire irons dangling from her underwear and she's just carrying them around the street because I. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so she did tell the police that, and uh, they did not believe her, as you can probably imagine. (laughs) They couldn't figure out why she would carry her own irons like that, especially outside of the home, (laughs) and she was charged. The second thief (laughs) can't even. A single woman with an awkward gait is picked out by the police on suspicion of shoplifting. The woman claimed being pregnant was causing her to walk weird, but they didn't believe her. When they searched her, they found five pounds of cigars, nine pounds of tobacco, a quantity of tea, and a bottle of gin. <laughs> it was all hidden in the layers of her kernel If dress. I knew how to do sound effects and audio, I would have did a drum roll before the bottle of gin. It was the last thing I was expecting. Right. It's just a cherry on I top. thought after the tea, she would be done, and then it was just a bottle of gin, and... Maybe just, it was, like, going to be her celebration drink. <laughs> just kind of want to meet her. Who is ballsy enough to do that? Right. So, in summary, today the majority of medication is regulated. There's no Fowler solution to be found at your local health food store, and you won't find arsenic amongst the baking ingredients. What you can find, however, is a plethora of alternative treatments. Pills, creams, lozenges, soaps, tablets, tonics. Many claim health benefits from their use, but not all have the case studies to prove its effectiveness. So it's important to be an informed consumer because the ethics of quack medicine aren't regulated, relegated only to the past. The cosmetic industry that started with a simple desire to conceal blemishes has since grown into a multi-billion dollar industry. Makeup has become an art. Without the heavy metals of the past, cosmetics are not deadly. And for the most part, they're not inherently bad or evil or dangerous. But that being said, it's important to read ingredient lists and know about the companies you're supporting and what's in these products. So I wanted to mention, I know I've started to kind of convert you, but almost everything I bought from a big box store for makeup, I've started to buy through small indie companies Mm because I really like it. I don't have to worry about the makeup being tested on animals. I don't have to worry what's in the ingredient list. They're very open about all of it, and it benefits a small business. So it's it's a win-win in my mind. I find that the they have superior product. The prices are really great. You really can't go wrong. Two of my most favorite right now are Notoriously Morbid and Aroma Lee. They both have really great um, lines of makeup inspired by, like, Greek gods and horror movies and everything. And um, so I just, I guess I try and find a little bit of satisfaction knowing that when we go to Target and we go shopping inevitably, because that's what we do, that all the clothing that I'm considering buying on an impulse buy isn't going to be a danger to me or you or anybody around us. And I thought it would be fun to kind of compare and contrast some of these fashion trends to some that are currently happening now. And now I am far from being caught up on fashion. I wear yoga pants and flowy tank tops 95% of my life. I wish I could wear that 95% of my life. Yeah, you have an outdoor job. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have to leave that out. 
sometimes. I do, and it sucks. So I really wanted to know what was popular right now, and I talked to my friends Amber and Melanie, who are both lovely co-workers of mine. They are seamstresses and sewer extraordinaires, and they're in on what's in. So according to them, and I'm going to call them my sources because that makes it sound kind of fun, so according to them, what's in today is crop tops, again, yep. which I have seen at Target. I just saw um, crop top sweatshirts for yep. the first time. Thigh-high boots and socks are also super popular, which also coincides with it being fall. But I've definitely mm-hmm. seen more styles of really tall boots and really tall socks being worn with, like, shorter boots. Yeah. So it's, like, kind of like a legging thing, but not really. Women rocking men's suits. Have you seen pictures lately from, like, any of the award shows? Oh, There yes. was one that went um, viral, popular, whatever, of Zendaya at yes. one of the local ones, and she was rocking a suit, and it looked amazing. And so according to these same sources, fringe boots are in, even if you haven't seen them yet. They're in the works or something that's popular right now. Mm. The popular colors for the season are burgundy and burnt orange and then we've got the extra bulky sweaters which are popular again because they're fucking adorable and really comfortable as hell and the one that i was the most surprised to hear about was overalls yeah i don't remember overalls being in my life other than when i was a tiny little child with like pigtails and stuff right but apparently right now um full length and shorts are are in fashion and for the full length it's denim all the way, but for the short ones, it's okay to do, like, patterned, crazy hmm. kind of designs, which I thought that would probably be fun. And considering it's supposed to get down to 40 degrees tonight here in Rochester, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention the classics, because it's that season, people. So bring on the fuzzy socks, the slouch hats, and the fingerless gloves. All the fuzzy socks. All the fuzzy socks. And will you go out of your way to step on a crunchy looking leaf? Always. Me too. It's very satisfying. And so disappointing if it's not. Yeah, that too. Like if it's rained. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's been doing a lot of lately. We need to go to a pumpkin patch still. Yes. It's been raining though and that. Mm. I mean, I love pumpkin patches, but it's just mud fields. It's not not exactly makes me want to drag two kids out into it. Don't blame you. So we, to recap, we are down to, I had to check my hand again, 27 days to Halloween. We're posting a little uh, extra blurb in the Patreon tomorrow to go with this episode where we just did a little bit of a get to know you. We talked about Halloween and next week when we come back with our next episode, we'll have another little tidbit because we'd like to get to know you guys. So we will see you back here in one week. And I think we're going to leave the topic of the episode a surprise. Yeah. Because this was a two-parter, so they know we had it coming yeah. this episode. So we'll be back with a surprise. Awesome. All right. Stay weird, friends. Peace. Peace.